This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 47. This is Writing Excuses, Believable Worlds, Part 1, The Illusion of Real. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're all real. I'm Dan. I'm Fonda. I'm Mary Robinette. I might be an illusion. That's Howard, by the way. We're going to talk about how to create the illusion of realness, um, which is still important even though you're writing something that is not real. Uh, where, where do we start with the illusion of real? So uh, I love creating worlds that feel as real as possible. So one of my goals is to create a fantasy world where the reader feels like they could get on a plane and fly to the place and walk around on the streets and go into the restaurants and see the cars and, um, and that there's, there's text texture and, and, uh, verisimilitude to the fantasy world. Um, and you know, not all fantasy and science fiction worlds are meant to believe, be believable. Some are wacky and comical and outlandish, but if you are trying to create a secondary world that feels very real. How do you do it? And um, I have three principles that I follow, and they are similarity, specificity, and selective depth. So to dive into each of those a little bit, um, similarity uh, is um, what I is based on the idea that the reader believes in the fictional world, not because of what's different about it, but because of what is similar. And um, they are going to grasp onto things that are relatable and uh, things that are universal. So if you have a character um, who is uh, in a situation where they're working in a dead end job and they have this demanding boss, but they've got to stay in the job because um, they've got to pay their bills. Right? That is a really relatable situation, even if that character is a apprentice magician working under the thumb of some really demanding high mage. Uh, they are also going to grasp onto the everyday details that mirror what they already know. So if you are walking through a fantasy market and you infuse your prose with things like the smell of baking bread or uh, you know the garbage behind this food stall, uh, those are all things that readers already can very easily bring to the mind. And so they can very quickly fill that in. And then finally, the last element of similarity is just recognizable truths about our society, about the world, about human nature. We all have, we all know things like, you know, there's inequality in the world. Um, people will sacrifice for those they love. Uh, you know, those thing, those sort of thematic elements that even if you're in a far future, a thousand years from now, or a completely different fantasy world, uh, those are going to make your reader feel like they are a part of that world. There's a, uh, there's a thing that happens on uh, small aircraft um, where you have a, a ribbon of 
stuff next to the next to the cockpit that's okay to walk on and next to it there will be a sign or a a shoe print with a red x through it or something saying not a step basically saying this part of the wing is not made to support your weight please don't walk here or our flights today will not be good you know walk walk on this part putting the no step or not a step label on a piece of a spacecraft immediately makes the entire spacecraft feel real because somebody has used this enough to figure out how to use it wrong and what what people are going to do wrong. And so I love just the no step label as a whole category of things that let me very quickly rubber stamp something to make it feel real. That's uh, that's exactly one of the things that I was going to say is that one of the ways that I uh, I try to make things look real um, or feel real is figuring out uh, how they are misused and broken. Um, so the, like the garbage, the the no step, um, the uh, the the piece of clothing that you've had since you were in high school that you really shouldn't have anymore, but you still do. One of the mistakes that I see people make um, when they're writing historical fiction is that all of the characters will be wearing clothing from the year the novel is mm-hmm. set. And yeah. no one does that unless something has gone terribly, terribly wrong in your life. So I, I do tend to look at, um, at at how things can break and why we hold on to things. I used to do props um, for theater when I was living in New York. And one of the things that I had to do was, like the set designer would, you know, build the set and I had to, I had to fill it with the minutia of a character's life. And it's the, it, it's those little weird pieces. Like when you're digging in a bag, how many, um, how many things are, uh, are, are there? Um, so anyway, those are, those are things that I, I get excited about the, the things that break. Yeah. The, the, the clothing point is a really good one. Uh, there's a YouTuber that I love to watch named Bernadette Banner, who talks about historical costuming in movies and television. And one thing she will always point out, if there's a show that has done their costuming really well, one of the things that they will often include is having the servants wearing clothes that are 10 to 20 years out of date because they can't afford the new stuff. They saved up and they finally got this one thing or they got it secondhand and they just keep wearing it. Uh, because that's the best thing they can afford, even though it's out of fashion. Yeah, um, I, I recall uh, Michael McLean telling a story about, I think it was Jimmy Durant, Mr. Kruger's Christmas. Is that Jimmy Durant? Uh, it's Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, yeah. Um, going through the costuming department and looking at what the costuming people were offering and and him saying, you know, touching the fabric and saying, no. No, that's the right time, but old Mr. Kruger, he, he would not be comfortable in this. But this, this is about five years older. Kruger would have kept this coat. And going through, you know, old man going through the the wardrobing and helping with the world building by saying, this is what this guy is going to wear. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that ties uh, pretty well to the... Um, the Before second point. The next point. Let's let's do our book of the week. Sounds good. Oh, book of the week. I have that. 
I have that, and I will hold it up for the camera that nobody but our guests can see. Um, <laughs> Starship Right One. That's Starship, and then W R I G H T, all one word. One by Jeff Zagal. This is not a novel. It is not a short story. It is a, uh, for for lack of a better term, it's a coffee table picture book of Jeff Zagal's Starship designs that were not tied to any particular project. And it is a delight to flip through because as you flip through and, and look at these Starship designs, these spaceship pictures, um, you start to do the same thing the artist does, which is imagine how is this vehicle being used? Who built it and why? What was their budget? Why did they make some of these decisions? Why does it have a red stripe? Why does it? And uh, there's little notes from Jeff all the way through about his thinking and his process. Um, it is a fantastic reference, uh, mostly for sci-fi writers, not because you are going to steal Jeff's ship designs and put them in your own books, but because you are going to fill your head with pictures of spaceships and reasons why those spaceships look the way they do. Um, and full disclosure, I wrote the introduction, but I've already been paid. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> All right. So Fonda, let's talk about specificity now. Yeah. So the idea behind this is that when you're writing uh, and describing something in, in your prose, specific is more powerful than vague. So let's say you have a, a line in your story and it says, um, she drove the car down the road, right? That is a perfectly serviceable sentence. Um, and everyone who's reading it is going to think that they know what that means. Uh, but that is a lot less powerful than she urged her 1997 Honda Civic down the I-5 freeway, right? Now you have information about her car, uh, that it is old and is probably on its last legs and she is somewhere on the West coast of the United States. Right. So um, this goes uh, the, not just for you know, contemporary fiction, but um, also for speculative fiction. Um, you can, you can absolutely invent specificity that conveys more information um, and does the heavy lifting of world building for you without really being noticed. And I love to do this by creating names for the luxury cars in my world, um, the restaurants, um, the businesses, the street names, um, the districts in the city, like all of that invented specificity does a lot of world building without stopping to explain anything. Um, and like there is a, uh, there's a line in actually my um, young adult science fiction novel. Um, and it is, uh, if you were writing it that in a, um, in a, in a non-science fiction story, it would be, he heard the helicopter descend, but I wrote it as he recognized the distinctive thrum of a microvision T-15 stealth copter. Like what the heck is a microvision engine T-15 stealth copter? Who knows? I made it up, right? But like the fact that he recognizes that noise says, says something about that protagonist and it, it orients the reader as this being a military sci-fi in the future. 
So that's the sort of um, specificity that uh, that can really, on the edges, make your world building more fun and feel more real. We did that so much in Schlock Mercenary and the Planet Mercenary world book, um, the, the role-playing book, where I, I had to sit down and fill in the holes. I'm like, well, I created, you know, a couple of restaurants. You know, I've got, I've got, you know, the Popso vending, and I've got the Taco Bufa uh, restaurant, which Dan's already grinning because Taco <laughs> Bufa. Bufa is Puerto Rican for to throw, as in to throw a fart. Um, and so I loved that name. But uh, I then had to go through and fill out the rest of the universe with at least three more restaurant names and at least three more manufacturer names. And the whole place just comes to life comes to life when you start naming things, even if you don't know why it's named what it's named. We're using a lot of science fictional examples for this because it's very easy with brand names and stuff. But even in historical or in fantasy, you can still do this. Um, and an example that leaps to mind is the first scene with William Turner in Pirates of the Caribbean, the, the very first Pirates movie, where he arrives and he shows the governor or mayor, whoever it is, the sword. And he gets very specific about the type of hilt that it has and where the tang is and all of these aspects of the sword that still ground you in the world. And they make him look very competent and tell us, oh, he knows what he's talking about. This is a world where swords matter and all of these, this specificity, but in a kind of fantasy non-technological way. Which I, I'm going to use to segue us to to Vanda's final point, which is about selective depth. Because you don't want to do that with, with every single thing that your character interacts with. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you're trying to make choices about, about when, um, the, the metric that I use is that you're, you're trying to choose places that remove ambiguity or add emphasis. So... Uh, you know, adding emphasis that this is a, a slightly stranger place or removing ambiguity about this. But the other piece for me is, um, relates to something we talked about previously about things my character interacts with. If my character is going to interact with, a, um, you know, a sword and, and it's going to be an important plot point later, I want to make sure that they have an interaction with that sword in three, I'm making up the number three, but like in three different ways. Otherwise, if every time they have an interaction with that sword, it's exactly the same kind of interaction, it's telegraphing to my reader how that's going to be used in the big climactic plot point. And it also makes it seem very flat and artificial. Like, um, you know, a, a butter knife is normally used to spread butter. However, uh, in the past week, I have also used the butter knife to unlock a door. <laughs> Um, and uh, to scrape paint off uh, some tile in our, our new bathroom. Um, these are not either of them approved uses for butter knives, but if I were doing that in a novel, that butter knife would feel absolutely real and very much part of the world. So when I used it in a fourth unanticipated plot-specific way, it wouldn't come as, it would both be a surprise, but also it would be an established piece of the, the world and it would feel very real and lived in. Butter knife as flathead screwdriver in order to get the computer cabinet open because the screwdriver I picked was a little one 
and the screw was too tight. And so I needed the leverage of a great big long handle. And don't at me, bro. That's, yes, I'm using a butter knife to open my computer. I think sometimes where you choose to apply selective depth is also on um, the expertise level of the author. Mm. And, you know, I, I use this, this example of uh, Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy has so much uh, detail on the language. I mean, he was a linguist, and so he created an entirely different language and then also partially created something like 10 other languages. So languages were just his jam. And that part of uh, Middle Earth feels extremely uh, well-developed. Um, but it's not like he really went into the economics of Middle Earth. Like, I still don't know how orcs got paid. Like, I don't know what how people are making money. But in a, sometimes when you go really deep in one area of the world, you kind of create the impression that that depth must be everywhere else as well. And people kind of give you credit for where you did an A-plus job. Um, while you contrast to that, that to, say, um, Pat Rothfuss's Name of the Wind, where you know he's not a linguist and he did not create 10 different languages. Um, but Pat has said he's a geek for old coins. And so his, like the, the currency in that world is very well, um, described and like, he has even little, um, the, the, he makes them and, and, um, auctions them off for his fundraiser. And so he's gone deep in a different area. So, um, sometimes, uh, you know, there's, it's, there's an element of, um, where you want to go deep as an author, what are, what's your protagonists, um, you know, the, the story that they're in, involved in and, and the needs of the narrative, right? If you have, let's say, a jailbreak as a really big part of your story, you better do the world building around like prison security really well because that's so vital. All right, that is a perfect segue into our homework, which is also about selective depth. Yeah, so this week I want you to use your own project, whatever um, you have in progress, and consider where um, you might want or need to go into selective depth in your world building to create the greatest sense of real in your world. All right, this is Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses, now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dan Wells, Fonda Lee, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. To learn more about Writing Excuses, visit patreon.com forward slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. 
I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.